The question is, how does hate affect health? The people who are expressing that dislike may act on the dislike and hurt others. There's a very direct pathway to trauma and violence. Hello, this is Prevention Works. I'm Gretchen Miller. And I think it's fair to say we live in particularly hateful times. Spend any time on social media and you'll know what I mean. I think there is a pathway through hate changing the public conversation, chipping away at civility. And that gives license for many to act on their worst impulses to then target and hurt the other. To talk about hate, we're welcoming a rather special guest brought to Australia by the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre, which is, of course, the host of this podcast too. Sandro Galea is one of the most important and innovative voices in American health and medicine. He's named one of Time magazine's epidemiology innovators and listed as one of the world's most influential scientific minds by Reuters. He's a physician and an author, and he's dean of Boston University's School of Public Health. So, Sandro, welcome and thanks for joining us. Before we get to hatred, can we start with a reflection on health generally? I think we're doing pretty well, aren't we, globally speaking? It's better today than it has ever been, for some, of course. But poor economic development and poor quality health are inextricably tied. And on the other hand, some high health spending countries like the USA still have poor health outcomes. And in fact, life expectancy has dropped there over three consecutive years. How can that be? So, first of all, it's important to recognize that this is a better time to be alive from the perspective of health than ever in history. Uh, life expectancy has doubled over the past 100, 150 years, which is extraordinary, all due to improvements in public health. Having said that, we are at a place in history where we can do better, we can do much better, because we know what, what it is that we can do to improve our health. So let's talk about the United States as an example. The United States has worse health than any other high-income country. That's despite the fact that it spends more than 40% more on healthcare than its next closest competitor. Why is that? Well, the answer is because America spends all its money on healthcare, on medicine. It does not invest in the other forces that generate health. And that is a very instructive lesson because it really speaks to what are the forces that generate health. And the forces that generate health are not healthcare. Those forces are the world around us. It is economic conditions. It is gender equity. It is having stable housing. It is having parks to play in and recreation. It is having healthy food. That is what generates health. And those forces, the United States underinvests in. So do we properly, as a community, as a wider community, understand what public health is? I think we have a challenge with understanding what public health is. I think we simply do not understand that public health is about generating health in as many people as possible for as long as possible. We tend to think of public health as being about vaccines and hygiene. It is that, but it is much more than that. Public health is about creating a world around us that generates health. It's about the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. It's about where we live, where we work, where we play. 
That is what public health is about. It is about changing those conditions so that you and I can be healthy and we can live up to our potential. As I recall it, there used to be a lot more thought about those wider conditions and their impact on us as a community. And, you know, that, of course, means social health as well as physical health. Do you think that things have changed over the last, you know, 40, 50 years? Yeah, I think they have. And the evidence is that they have. And certainly I can speak to this best from the American context where I live. But uh, the United States, I mentioned a few minutes ago, has worse health indicators than any other high-income country. But it wasn't always like that. That's really a turn for the worse in American health in the past 40 years or so. So there has been a, a slow, gradual disinvestment in the notion that the world around us is inextricably linked to health. And I think there have been many forces that have contributed to that. I think one of these forces is the rise in medicine, in the salience of the idea of medicine, that there can be a pill, a magic pill, that silver bullet that you and I can take to make us better. And uh, we have grown in our fascination with that notion. And some ideas like the precision medicine movement are really the ultimate expression of that thinking. I think a second force has been a growing disinvestment in collectivism, in the notion that our health and our lives are inextricably intertwined. There has been a a growth in the idea that I can make myself healthy and I may care about you because I'm a nice person, but really, I don't really think that my health and your health are interlinked, when in fact, of course, they are. So there's been this growing individualism coupled with a growing fascination about the the power of individual and individual behavior change. And those two have created license for a societal disinvestment from the forces that make us healthy. And you could add to that economic forces because health is a, uh, a profitable business. Yes, there, there's no question about it. I think economic forces then have reinforced both of those tendencies. I think economic forces have obviously reinforced the development of medicine and curative care. They've also reinforced the notion of the individual behaviorism, this notion that I, the individual, can control everything about my health. And there is an enormous industry around health, health behavior, change, wellness, and all of that ultimately is predicated on this idea that my health is all about me. And and it forgets that my health does not exist without context. So what are the challenges in this context for the field of epidemiology now? Yeah, so epidemiology really is about understanding the causes of the health of populations so that we may intervene and improve the health of populations. And so how epidemiology opens itself up is a matter of broadening its considerations Absolutely. to all those other yes, areas. Exactly, exactly. And, and that, has a, that has substantial implications. It has implications for causal thinking. It has implications for the question of how is something a cause and, and how is something a cause that you can do something about. So to, to, to give a concrete example, race is a good example. We do know that there are enormous health differences by race. Is race itself a cause or is racism the cause? Are the social and economic conditions that are faced by people of different races the cause? And that's probably what it really is. It's not really about race, which is ultimately simply about skin color, which which involves negligible changes in our genetic structure. Uh, race in and of itself is, is immaterial to our health. What is material to our health, enormously so, is racism that people face the economic opportunities, the structure of intergenerational transmission of wealth and opportunity that people of different races face. And those are the causes that are most of interest to epidemiology. 
Um, we'll get to that a bit further um, later on. You have also talked about how epidemiology could take advantage of big data and has been reluctant to do so. What did you mean by that? Yeah, epidemiology has um, as one of its um, defining features. I think one of the things that makes epidemiology a, uh, an interesting and uh, worthwhile discipline is that it's very rigorous in thinking about data and how data contributes to insight about the causes of health of populations. As a result of that, I think epidemiology has been um, careful, perhaps suitably careful, about what data it uses. At the same time, that care perhaps sometimes becomes caution and reticence to embrace the availability of big data, things like social media data, which of course involves millions and Mm. billions of data points. And um, I have written that insofar as epidemiology is about understanding the causes of population health, we should engage with all data sources that can give us insight. And if those data sources are big data sources, then we simply need to learn how to deal with their imperfections. Especially big data sources like social media, which is so chaotic. But there are insights Mm. to be gleaned from that that... um, are you really cannot get from anywhere else. For example, I think social social media data can inform us about the public conversation, about how does one how does the public conversation change how we think and how we act. You really cannot get that anywhere for, except from social media data. So your book Well is a clarion call in a way. But of course, as you were hinting at before, it's not concerned with the popular wellness industry with its shonky gizmos and dubious recommendations for personal well-being. And that's really important. Why? What's happened to the idea of wellness? Yeah, it's been very interesting. I think the idea of wellness has been taken over by an industrial segment. I think it is a, it is a commercial segment that promotes ideas about what an individual can do in isolation on the promise that that's going to make you well. And it, that is a, a, another manifestation of our focus on individual well-being at the expense of thinking about the world around us. And uh, the story I have used to illustrate that, if I may, is the story of a goldfish. And if a goldfish in a bowl, and you'd like your goldfish to be healthy, so you tell your goldfish to exercise, to swim around the bowl 10 times clockwise, 10 times counterclockwise, so it stays fit. And when you feed it the little flaky food that you feed goldfish, you tell it not to eat too much so it doesn't get obese. And when the goldfish itself gets sick, you get it a goldfish doctor so it stays healthy. And that's what the wellness industry does. Swim around the bowl, eat well, get a good doctor. And then, of course, one day the goldfish dies. And you say... Why did the goldfish die? It exercised, it ate well, saw a doctor. Well, the reason it died is because we didn't change its water. That's really my concern about a wellness focus, a singular focus on individual and individual behaviorism. It is forgetting the water. And the water is everything around us. The water is our social interactions, our social networks, the places where we live, the policies and laws and regulations within which we live, whether our roads are safe, whether we are under danger of being assaulted because we we walk down dark streets. That's the world around us. So your book is about what it takes to make a well society, really. And the contents page of your book lists some really big themes that actually are big themes throughout human history, from money to power and politics, place, love, hate, compassion, choice and luck. These aren't traditional keywords for epidemiology. They're they're more archetypal forces. Yes, they are. But I think they are 
forces that are ineluctably linked to our health. And I think we need to take them in, in, into account. Luck, let's take luck, for example. We never talk about luck and we, we never think about our luck unless we feel we're being particularly unlucky. But you and I are both sitting here relatively able-bodied. And a lot of that is due to luck of the genetic draw and of the parents we happen to be born to. And it, when one realizes that, it, uh, it should imbue us with humility to recognize how much luck plays a role in the generation of our health. And we should recognize that. Humility is an interesting word for an epidemiologist. <laughs> I, um, there's a chapter on humility in the book. And uh, the reason chapter on humility is to try to urge us to have the humility to recognize that what we think causes health changes as we know more and more. And we should be not as rigid about our preconceived notions. And I use the example that 200 years ago, we used to think that our health is determined by a balance of our blood and our bile, our yellow bile and brown bile and our phlegm. That's why we used to bleed people when they had fevers. We used to bleed people when they had fevers because of the notion that their blood and phlegm was out of whack and that they needed to be bled, they had some blood let out. Bad blood. Bad blood. Now, you and I are sitting here today and we think, well, that's sort of silly. Why would we ever think that? But that was the prevailing understanding of the cause of, of health for 2,000 years. In fact, our understanding that's different than that is relatively new. It's in the past 200 years. So that has implications for how we think today. And let me give you a more concrete modern example. So what is our leading cause of, of death in Australia or in the United States? Is it heart disease? Or is it tobacco smoking? Or is it low education? Now, the answer is, of course, it's all three. It depends on your paradigm. If you're looking at a, at a physiological paradigm, you'll say it's heart disease. If you're looking at a behavioral paradigm, you'll say it's tobacco smoking. If you're looking at a social structural paradigm, you'll say it's low education. But how we label the causes of death matters for how we invest our resources. If the leading cause of death in our mind is heart disease, we are going to invest in a National Institute of Heart Disease Research, be that in Australia or be that in the United States. If we say the leading cause of death is tobacco, we're going to invest in the National Institute of Tobacco Smoke Research. If we say it's low education, we're going to invest in a research institute about how education affects health. So we have to have the humility to recognize that our lens on the world dictates how we operate, where we put our resources, and the research questions we ask, and the actions we take. So we don't have time to talk about every aspect and every archetypal force that you mention. But we should spend some time talking about hate and public health, as you did in that incisive discussion hosted by the Prevention Centre earlier this month. It's fascinating, I think, because when you speak about cultural power, and that is one of the topics of your book, there seems to be so very much, so much hate around lately. And I'm pretty sure that that level of hatred and fury isn't healthy. We'll talk about how practically, on a policy level, we might address this shortly. But first of all, we should unpack what hate means. Can you give me a definition? I think the standard definition of hate is a dislike, an intense dislike of, of, of the other, of someone else, of one group to the other. And from a health perspective, the question is, how does hate affect health? And I think hate affects health in three ways. Number one is the people who are expressing that dislike may act on the dislike and hurt others. There's a very direct pathway to trauma and violence. Physically hurt. Physically hurt others. That's number one. Number two is I think there is a pathway 
through hate changing this, the public conversation, change, hate changing our social compact, hate chipping away at civility. And that gives license for many to act on their worst impulses to then target and hurt the other. That's and so we've got physical one-on-one -on -one violence, but then we've got more insidious violence more insidious, that you're talking more, about. More insidious and more group-like violence. And that doesn't have to mean gangs attacking no, no, other no, no, gangs, no, no, not, no, at all. not at all. Yeah. Not at all, not at all. It, simply, it simply means we're dealing with populations, millions and millions of people, and we have a responsibility collectively to encourage the better angels of our nature. And I, I worry that hate and hate speech in public gives license to the worst angels of our nature. So that's what I mean by that. And I think the third pathway is that when we are become accepting of hate as a norm, we accept policies and practices that create marginalization, that we marginalize and separate ourselves from each other and from the other. So for example, hate as a guiding public policy will result in efforts to segregate, to separate the races. And that we know in health is associated with poor health because segregation is linked to differential availability of resources and the groups that are marginalized, the groups that are vulnerable, will end up having less access to those resources. And that's simply speaking things like good public hospital care, but also good education, good um, social resources Correct. like All parks. All and of All of that. So... I wonder if you've personally spent any time on social media as you investigate your thesis and have a thought about the frenzy of fury and hatred that we're seeing. Yeah, I worry about that. There is um, substantial uh, social media outrage over really the, the smallest thing that then results in groups othering other groups. I mean, just my visit to Australia, because it was billed as uh, that I was talking uh, about hate and a couple of fora triggered these social media microstorms of people criticizing me. And uh, at, at a personal level, it doesn't particularly affect me. But uh, that's just emblematic of the larger social discourse. And I feel like social media, in no small part because it, it feels anonymous, allows this rending of social fabric. It allows this uh, us casting aside the um, responsibility towards civility towards one another. And, and that, that is problematic. Do you think that it's an, in some ways it reflects on our collective mental health, these outpourings, mm. these storms, as you say? Yeah, it's, it's an excellent question. I, you know, I think mental health is, um, I've often said, as the canary in the coal mine, yes, because mental health changes rapidly. It changes much more rapidly in response to social uh, exposures than does, let's say, heart disease or cancer. So I do think that uh, mental health is changing in response to this uh, vituperative culture that we're living in. And there, there are data to show that social media does affect mental health. There are data to show that seeing um, images on television or transmitted to social media are associated with uh, poor mental health after traumatic events, for example. And I would expect that social media experience is likewise linked to adverse mental health. I wonder about the the disinhibition that allows us to let let fly, as you say, the worst angels of human nature. And it's interesting that you use the word angels, but you do talk about leadership in relation to letting those angels fly. What do you mean by that? Well, the, the, probably the central role of leadership in any institution, be that national or be that municipal or be that in a in a private or public institution, is culture and norm setting. That's what leadership does. And uh, if leadership is going to signal 
that language that harms other is acceptable, it is not unreasonable that those who are following a leader in whatever particular context are then going to think that it is okay. And uh, so that's what I mean when I say it gives rise to the worst angels of our nature. And I do think that leaders have a particular responsibility to um, use their words carefully because their words are setting the standards for everybody else who is in their institution. So I do worry about that at the, at the global level. We see this all the time with uh, the language that's being used by some very prominent leaders. Obviously, being hated can lead to being shot. I mean, that's a really just simple equation if you're in the US, say. Um, what are some of the other health impacts of hate? We might see somewhere like Australia where guns are not available. The consequences of hatred, if, you've, if you follow the paradigm I was saying, which is that there are direct consequences in terms of trauma and violence, indirect consequences because you end up with uh, forces like segregation, discrimination, and racism extend throughout the entire health spectrum. We know that there are mental health consequences of these forces. There are physical health consequences. We know, for example, spatial racial residential segregation is associated with heart disease. That groups that are minority groups that are segregated have worse heart disease indicators than groups that are not. Now, why is that? That's through a whole range of forces. It's through social stressors that in and of itself has physiologically detrimental um, effects through the absence of resources that promote health. Now, those resources are access to good health care, yes, but more importantly, access to education that leads to better health behaviors, access to parks and recreation, access to nutritious food, access to healthy habits and healthy environments. All of those are socially patterned, socially structured. And in a world where policies and regulations are patterned on a dislike of one group by another, and particularly where the dominant group is setting policy in a way that further disadvantage of a marginalized group, we are going to be reinforcing the negative forces that harm health of marginalized groups. Is hate therefore mainly an issue of race in the context of your research? I think um, race is has historically been perhaps the most obvious manifestation of hate, but I think um, hate emerges on multiple other social dimensions. It emerges around the dimensions of social class, particularly lately around immigration status among aliens and the othering of aliens. This is a particular concern in the United States, and I know it's also a concern to some extent in Australia. I think hate hate is ultimately the fundamental force that drives misogyny, which is uh, um, based on genders. We see hate based on religion. So I think there are many different dimensions, all related to aspects that define us. And all of it, all of it should be abhorrent. So I wonder about measurable impacts. Maybe you could give me some examples of how you've been able to measure this. Yeah, so we've done work looking at the health of Arab Americans in the post-9-11 context where there was a rise in uh, hate directed at those groups, become stigmatizing of Arab Americans, marginalization of Arab Americans. And we showed those groups had worse health indicators as a result of the social stigma and the hate that came from that turbulent moment of cultural time. And I actually don't think that that's resolved. I think Arab Americans remain marginalized in the United States to this day. In a way that they weren't before. I think in a way that they were not before. I, I don't think Arab Americans were ever fully assimilated, but certainly in a way that they were not before. And particularly every single time when there is an incident of global conflict, which involves then a particular group, you end up with this stereotyping and marginalization of that group, in this context being Arab Americans. So 
there are data that show this. Is that mostly around mental health or is it starting to play out in terms of physical health? It's been, what, 18 odd years? Yeah, it's both. The, uh, the, the best available data is about mental health, but I would expect to now to be seeing its shadows in physical health as well. So I wonder if hate results in poor mental health outcomes for the haters. Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's a little bit of evidence on that, not very much. Most of the evidence on that is in the domestic violence literature where uh, abusers have been shown to have poorer health that is associated with that defining characteristic. And it's complicated why that is. It's probably a whole set of factors that are actually go with that behavior of abuse. And typically, this is male on, on female behavior, not exclusively, but typically. But I think the existence of hate in the hater, as you put it that way, represents a uh, confluence of negative forces that I would expect would harm the health of the person who is allowing themselves to hate. Not as much as, but also worth considering in the context of hate and its dynamic. So given that hate is such an all-encompassing challenge, it's philosophically so, Mm. psychologically, spiritually, socially, all of these things together affecting our public health, it's also preventable. And I wonder if hate is an emergency and if we should see it as a crisis. Mm. That's a great question. It really is is an odd moment in history to be sitting here and saying, should hate be a public health crisis? And it was sort of inconceivable five years ago that we'd be sitting here having such a conversation. But it does feel like this conversation is worth having right now. And uh, we haven't discussed in this uh, chat that um, one of the challenges with hate as a public health issue is that guns, particularly in the American context, are give voice to hate. And that in many respects, if the tools that haters have available to them are blunt spoons, they're only going to do so much harm. If the tools available to them are guns where one can kill easily, one can do a lot more harm acting on that hate. So there's this confluence of hate going mainstream, a giving of license to to forces that aim to hurt and harm others, and the ready availability of tools that one can use to exercise that harm, to act on it. And that is an unfortunate confluence of factors. And it does seem like a critical point in the U.S. with a massacre just about every other day. It does It does feel that way. I mean, the U.S. Um, demonstrably has about one mass shooting, which is defined as about four people being shot every day of, of the year. You have about 40,000 Americans dying from guns every year. Guns are a defining epidemic of our time in the United States. We specialise in other forms and expressions of hate Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. And we have some legislation around hate. And there are some sobering figures that the Prevention Centre has put together around that legislation, which are worth articulating here. In Victoria, for example, there were 4,257 incidents fuelled by hate over a four-year period. But in that same four-year period, across Australia, only 21 people were convicted of a hate crime. Mm. And our police service has been accused of having its collective head in the sand about hate by US hate crime expert Matt Browning. In Tasmania, the Northern Territory and the ACT, racial vilification isn't a criminal offence, but it is in the other states. However, in New South Wales, here where it is a criminal offence, there has not been a single person convicted of threatening or inciting violence based on prejudice since those records began. 
even though some of our most public media figures have actively incited violence. I just wonder why our public officials find hate so difficult to deal with, even from a legal perspective and a criminal perspective. I think the challenge in Western democracies has been the tension between um, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and what to do with speech that harms others. Freedom of speech does not mean that there should be a license for unfettered speech, that uh, all speech ultimately is limited, and there may be official sanction or informal social sanction. We, we limit our speech all the time. So the notion that is often bandied about that, uh, well, it's all about free speech, I can say what I want, is frankly nonsense, because... Um, I do, I do not say what I want, neither do you. We live within a world of constraints on our speech. Most of those, those constraints are informal, and some constraints are formal. Speech that exists only to harm others, speech that cannot be rebutted, that is simply fabrication and uh, not based on fact, and whose sole purpose is to put others in danger, should be constrained. On a population level then, let's get to some brass tacks. Mm -hmm. If I'm a public health policy maker, and hate is surely preventable, and preventable disease is what concerns us here at the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre, how do I address this, practically speaking? What can I do? I think first and foremost, we address it through how we live on a day-to-day basis. I think public health and those in leadership positions in public health have a responsibility to set an example by being careful that they are promoting the antidote of hate, which is, I've written love or agape, however you want to call it, but ultimately it's language that is inclusive and uh, that promotes equity and justice. That's number one. Number two is we should call out hate when we see it. And I think we have a responsibility to have the kind of conversations you and I are having where we say this is a public health issue. We should be very clear that hate should be intolerable even if it had no health consequences. But the fact that it has health consequences makes it an important issue for us to tackle from a health point of view. And you've upped the ante in this conversation by saying this hate the public health crisis, which I I must admit I hadn't thought of it that way. But I think that's an important conversation to have because that raises awareness and raises alarms, appropriate alarms, that this is something, this is a social force that we should not be tolerating. And so as a policymaker, to help change the public conversation, is, does that mean that we're talking about policymakers working with lawmakers and urban planners to bring about a more civil society? I think that would be lovely. I think... <laughs> I think, I think um, is that one practical way about is, going about it? Is, it? it is, because we're it talking, is. you're talking about agape, you know, we're talking Greek here. We are, we are, um. we are and we're talking, we're talking about the basic criterion for health. The basic criterion for health is that all public policy and all private sector actions should be weighed against the standard of how they affect health. And if that's the case, then we should be in policy, we should be thinking about how is it that particular policy language, how is it the particular policy actions, how is it the particular urban planning efforts, to, to use your term, are contributing to health. That should be the basic criterion that guides our public policy. Now, why? For two reasons. Number one, the world around us is what drives health. And number two, health is perhaps the single most important unifying value. You and I, you and I may disagree about a whole host of issues about what matters to your life and to my life. We do not disagree that we both would like to be as healthy for as long as possible and we want our children to be as healthy for as long as possible. So therefore, that creates a common ground which we can build on. It creates a common ground that we can build on and we say, what are the forces around us that we should align to achieve that aspiration? 
Why do we care about health? What does health bring us as humans? I see health as a means, not an end. Let's use the analogy of driving our car. How many people enjoy taking their car to the shop? Nobody. What you want from your car and what I want from my car is that it works and it lets me do what I'd like my car to do. Maybe I get the thrill of driving the open road and driving down windy roads, or maybe I just use my car to go from A to B. It doesn't matter. That's what I do with what you do. Health should be the same way. Health should be a means. We should not have to worry about our health. We should all, God willing, die healthy. That's what we actually want to be. We would like to be as healthy as possible for as long as possible. So I think health creates the potential for us to flourish. It creates the potential for you to do what you'd like to do and me to do what I would like to do. We would like our health not to be in the way. So it should be a secondary thing. It shouldn't be something that we have to be concerned with. Correct. I think that's the kind of world I would like to live in. Because there are other things to be concerned with. Yes. There is a whole set of potential that humans can achieve by not having to worry about being healthy or not. I, I would like to see the human potential unleashed by people being as healthy as they can possibly be. So what is the healthy antidote to hate? Is it inclusion? Is it kindness? Is it love? Is it empathy, care or compassion? Mm. And how do we how do we buy these at The Chemist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I like all of those things. I think they all can be. My favourites are love and compassion. Compassion is is an effort to restructure the world to bring about the forces that generate health. It's an effort. Martin Luther King had a good definition of compassion. Compassion is not giving a coin to a beggar, he said. It is asking, why is he a beggar to begin with? That is compassion. It's what are the forces around us that result in some of us not having lives that are as rich as they should be? And saying it is a better world if we act on those forces so that everybody can realize their potential. That's compassion. I think love is love of others. And so we started at the beginning by you asking me to define hate. I said hate is a dislike of others. By love, I mean an embrace of humankind and saying that all people are ultimately equal and we should create the forces that everybody has the potential to realize their talents and to do what they would like to do in their life. That is the alternative to hate, love and compassion. Professor Sandro Galea, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Of course, you can find show notes and links wherever you get your podcasts or on the Australian Prevention Partnership Centre website. And the Prevention Partnership Centre, of course, hosted Professor Galea and it also hosts Prevention Works. I'm Gretchen Miller and I will see you next time.